Hello, comrades, and welcome to the Sunflower Socialist Podcast. Today is November 20th, 2020, and it's been a couple weeks since the election now, so I just want to talk about how they went, and I think it's fair to say that the results have been fairly mixed, to say the least. While Joe Biden appears to have won the presidency, despite the claims from Trump and his supporters, the Democrats lost 12 seats in the House, and while in the Senate, the Democrats did manage to flip two seats, they lost another one in Alabama, and while they do have a chance to win two more seats in the Georgia runoffs, which do look to be highly competitive, this would only result in a 50-50 split in the Senate, with the vice president being the tie-breaking vote, but I'm not going to hold my breath for that. Democrats managing to win both seats in Georgia is going to be very difficult. Uh, The state has not sent a Democrat to the Senate in some time. And while it is possible, I'm not sure that they're really going to be able to do it. So regardless, hopes for the Democrats to completely overtake the Republicans in the Senate appear to have been thoroughly dashed. The Democrats failed to flip most of the Senate seats they felt they could win and that they really needed to win, including one here in Kansas. I'd also point out that here in Kansas, the Democrats especially underperformed, especially on the down-ballot line, because in addition to failing the Senate seat, the Democrats failed to cut in to the Republican supermajority in the state legislature, and so Governor Laura Kelly, a Democrat, will still have her hands tied in the state legislature for the remainder of her first term. But before I get into that, we really have to talk about the elephant in the room, and that is Trump's refusal to, to concede the election and his attempts to overturn the election results. I should note that at the time this is being recorded, This has not largely been successful, and so, you know, it's likely he will not succeed in being able to prevent Biden from taking office, but the status may change by the time this podcast comes out and in the weeks after it. Now, thankfully, it hasn't gotten nearly as bad as I had feared and predicted in my last podcast, but again, this may change, and we may see Trump attempting to stay in power by other means, and already we're seeing most of his hardcore followers rallying behind his baseless claims of fraud and election rigging, Just here in town, I've personally seen a number of Trump supporters put up banners and signs in the yard saying things like, stop the steal. And this last week, we saw this large rally of Trump supporters in D.C. condemning the election. Now, it is important to note off the bat that these claims of fraud, manipulation, whatever, are totally bullshit. There is no evidence of fraud or tampering. When you bother to think about it for more than a second, it just doesn't make any sense. Like, why would the Democrats rig the election just to win the presidency and not also try and flip some House and Senate seats at the same time? (laughs) I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. In light of all the other failures by the Democrats in this election, why on earth would you believe that the Democrats rigged this election and didn't even bother to flip a couple Senate seats that they really needed or that they didn't, like, that they didn't even go for some state House seats or some down ballot races? It just doesn't make any sense. Did the Democrats just submit a bunch of ballots with only the presidential line marked? This is a totally unhinged conspiracy theory. It's being promoted by the team that lost. And so I've seen a lot of people on leftist and liberal Twitter kind of making fun of it with the term copium, which I'm going to be blunt and say that's actually pretty funny. So, you know, they're they're just being sore losers at this point, but it is still very concerning And while most of his legal challenges, most of Trump's legal challenges to the election results have been rejected or thrown out the minute they get to court, the more concerning aspects are, one, within the government agencies, specifically the Government Services Administration, which is headed by a Trump appointee, and they're the agency that is mostly responsible for overseeing the presidential transition, and the secretary, or the chair of the Government Services Agency, the GSA, 
has refused to sign the letter allowing Trump or allowing Biden's transition team to begin work. That's a definite problem and is really going to impede any form of presidential transition because most presidential transition teams have begun work right now and they're already hiring you know, staff for the new administration. And right now, we're not seeing that. They aren't getting the funds that they need, and we're they're denying vital information to the president-elect. And that's just going to create a lot of instability. This has put us in an environment of uncertainty, and it's going to make, even if we don't agree with the policies that some of the policies Biden wants to put in place, he still is going to have to address issues like the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. And the fact of the matter is, if he can't get in to access the information to begin his transition team, it is going to really impede the ability for him to address the crisis and to oversee things like vaccine distribution. That is a very serious concern. And even with uh, his lame duck status, we are still seeing Trump trying to push through a myriad of new policies uh, that are very detrimental. We saw just today Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, uh, unfortunately from Kansas, declared that the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement against Israel is... God... Like, I can't believe I even have to say it on here, but anti-Semitic, which it is not. But, God, he's still trying to push through aspects of his radical right agenda, even despite losing. And, you know, it's very concerning. And the fact of the matter is that this poison that he spread, this far-right proto-fascist poison that that Trump has been spreading, will continue to spread for many years, despite... Uh, losing this election, and even if he leaves office on Inauguration Day, it will continue to spread and continue to germinate in this country, and the climate he's only he's created will only make this even worse in the coming years. So we need to be organized, we need to be ready, and we need to continue to build both an opposition to this reactionary tide and a radical left alternative to both the far right and to liberal centrism, because that's the only way we're going to prevent the rise of someone worse than Trump in the future. There really isn't another way around this right now. We have to continue to organize. We have to continue to fight no matter what happens. I don't think that Trump will be successful in preventing Biden from taking office, but we need to be ready for what comes next. So let's move on now to the House and the Senate. Where do things go wrong for the Democrats? Now, already we're seeing the centrist commentators and the party insiders, including members of the House and Senate, uh, such as West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, who really should just cross the floor over to the Republicans if you ask me, And they're blaming it on socialists, Black Lives Matter, and the left more broadly. Now, this could not be further from reality. And it just is them showing their true colors. It's them saying, we don't like the left. We don't want to work with them. We want to get rid of them by all means because we don't like their agenda. They're just wanting to place blame on the left for their own failures so they can get away with rejecting a leftist agenda for the rest of their time in office. So that makes getting rid of these centrists even more important for us. Uh, Now, their whole idea is that they, if they want to win in 2022, their answer has to be they need to back away from the radical proposals. And that's coming from people like Joe Manchin, the most right-wing member of the Senate Democratic Caucus. And hearing them say it is like saying, we just need to turn around and go home when you're already on your living room couch. You know, it's it's illogical that they're even claiming it, because these people are not radicals. They're not advancing a leftist agenda. So what if the Republicans said it was? It's not true. And Republicans will call you radical left, socialist, whatever, no matter what. You can, you know, you don't need to hide from the, 
like hiding from those positions only makes it worse for you, if you ask me. And again, the evidence does not support these claims that they're making. Just when you look at it, if we look at these swing districts, we find that the Democratic vote share goes down, not up, as candidates move to the right. Now, these are based off of GovTrack ideological scores, not on a more comparative political ideological analysis of the candidates in questions. So the most left-wing candidate that was in this survey was Katie Porter from California. But in terms of the data available, it is a very effective refutation of the claims that to win in swing districts, to beat Republicans, Democrats need to run as diehard moderates or even as someone on the right themselves. Katie Porter is a prime example of this. She successfully flipped a seat that had been held by the Republicans since it was created. And she, while she's not the most progressive person in the House by any means, I mean, she's basically a standard American liberal and far from people like AOC, Barbara Lee, Rashid Tlaib, or Ilan Omar, the fact that she ran as someone who was very much a cent- on the center left and defeated uh, an incumbent Republican in a hardline Republican district is quite noteworthy. If we want to win these seats, the answer isn't run away from the left and run to the right. That only leads to your vote share going down, as this survey showed. So, like, it is utterly ridiculous to say that the Democrats are going to win by turning to the right now. it Their whole idea is just ideological projection on their part. It's not backed up by any evidence, and they're just trying to suppress the left by any means. Now, what really caused their defeat uh, on the down-ballot side was, in my opinion, this strategy of trying to win over Republicans who supported Biden against Trump and foster this narrative of good Republicans with things like coddling the Lincoln Project and spotlighting people like John Kasich at the Democratic Convention. Now, I guess their idea was, oh, if we want to win this election, we need to get Republican voters to vote for us. Well, for one, we've already seen that this didn't work. Trump won a larger share of the Republican electorate than any president since Richard Nixon. So the Republican vote almost entirely went to Trump. So that didn't work. And what it really did was it sent to these undecided independent voters, what it didn't send the message of vote Democrat all the way down the ballot. It sent the message of Trump isn't like all Republicans, so just don't vote for Trump. There are still good Republicans. It backfired spectacularly on the Democrats. And It did not help them win the Senate seats they needed and probably helped them lose more than a handful of of seats in the House. And we saw that here in Kansas. Barbara Bollier, a former moderate Republican state senator who crossed the aisle to join the Democrats only a year ago, she was the Senate candidate and she ran as a moderate. And in many of her ads, she spotlighted former Republican state legislators. This strategy did not help her one bit, as we've seen. And it only gets worse on the down ballot, where the Democrats look set to lose about five seats in the state House. Uh, which will take them down from 41 to 36 seats, and the state Senate is set to remain the same with only 11 Democrats in there and a Republican supermajority. So, I think I should probably go a bit more into depth on the Democrats here in Kansas and what went wrong here, because I think the losses are indicative of a much deeper problem for the Kansas Democrats involving their strategy, which was very much much focused on winning voters in Johnson County, where I'm from. Now, for those who aren't from Kansas, Johnson County is a major suburban area of the Kansas City metro. It is both the most populous county of Kansas and the most affluent. Now, JOCO, as many of us call it, uh, has sent a lot of moderate Republicans to the state house over the years, including Barbara Bollier herself before she crossed the floor to join the Democrats. And in recent years, the Democrats have made some noteworthy gains in Johnson County and in the 3rd Congressional District more broadly, which also includes Wyandotte County, where you'll find Kansas City, Kansas, and 
which is one of the strongest blue counties in the state, one of only two in the state. Now, in 2016, the 3rd Congressional District was the only congressional district in Kansas to vote for Hillary over Trump, and Trump narrowly won in Johnson County. Uh, this brought this made people realize that it was in play in the midterms, and so Democrats made some noteworthy gains in the 3rd District, and especially in Johnson County. Uh, Democrat Sharice Davids, who I've talked about on this podcast previously, was elected to the House of Representatives, and Joko played a significant role in help getting Laura Kelly elected governor, and the Democrats helped win quite a few state house seats, uh, including some pretty noteworthy ones uh, in Roland Park and in Lenexa, and this increased their overall share of votes in the state house. They thought, oh, clearly we just need to flip more of these seats in Johnson County and win these suburban voters in Joko with moderate candidates, and that's how we'll how we'll stop the Republicans. And this is a mindset that we've seen all across the country. This we gotta win the suburbs idea. Now, in fairness, this was the first election in 2020, was the first election since 1916, where Johnson County did vote for a Democrat on the presidential line. You know, so that is pretty noteworthy. Johnson County also did go for Boulier. Sharice Davids was reelected, but Boulier lost the Senate race, and the Kansas Dems' efforts to win districts outside of Joko suffered as a result and cost the Democrats some important House seats in places like Sedgwick County. And it failed to flip really any Senate seats. The Senate, the state Senate, is going to remain exactly the same as it was for the last four years. 11 Democrats to 40-some Republicans. So, really, this whole strategy, this Johnson County-focused strategy, has not worked for the Democrats here in Kansas. And I'm going to be blunt, winning the state as a whole is going to be a very serious challenge for the Democrats, because it is been a very long time since the Democrats have controlled more than just the governor's office. We've had a couple Democratic governors in the state. That's actually not uncommon. But in terms of the state legislature, it's quite rare. The last time the Democrats controlled any house in the state legislature was in the early 90s. And there's only been one time in U.S. history that the Democrats have controlled all three branches of the state government. And that was back in 1912. And even that one was basically undermined when the Republicans effectively tricked Democrats in the state Senate into refusing to seat a socialist candidate who had won in his election there, there, so they could deadlock the state Senate and give the lieutenant governor, who was a Republican, the tie-breaking vote. So that even the one time the Democrats did have control of the state legislature in this state, they lost it because of Republican shenanigans. So... Yeah, winning the state as a whole is going to be a very serious challenge for the Democrats, and especially for the left. I'm not going to deny it. But if they want to cut into that Republican supermajority in the state house and in the state Senate at the next election, they're going to need to get out of Johnson County. They're going to need to get back into Sedgwick County. They're going to need to get back into, uh, you know, into Western Kansas. Western Kansas has been effectively ignored by the Kansas Democrats for decades now, and the only way they're going to win the seats they need to to have an effective governing coalition with whatever moderate Republicans are sent from Johnson County and maybe elsewhere, they're going to have to go out and defeat some of the hardcore right-wingers in Western Kansas, because Western Kansas has been largely the source for the extreme right candidates. And the only way that they're going to do that is by abandoning this idea that we just need to win over these moderate Republicans or anything like that. The ideas that they're going to need to advance are going to be based more on agrarian populism than on moderate centrism. They're going to need to get out there and they're going to need to address 
directly address the issues that are facing rural voters. Population decline, rural poverty, hospital closures, water conservation. These are issues voters in these communities care about. And the only way you're going to win them over is by getting out there, talking to them about these issues, and making a concerted attempt to get their votes and get them on board. And that's going to mean that the Kansas Democrats are going to have to invest in organizing and in infrastructure in western Kansas, and they've been neglecting that for years. And the best organizers that they're going to find, I'll be blunt, are going to be the radicals. You know, they're going to need socialists and hardline progressives to go out there and be their organizers. But these people, people like me, we're not going to do it just out of the goodness of our hearts. We're going, we're only going to go out and organize these largely unorganized areas in western Kansas if we have something that we can believe that we are actually fighting for. We're not just fighting against Republicans, we're actually fighting to make this state better. We're going to move the state forward. And so that means they're going to have to start embracing some of our ideas. So that's just generally my take on Kansas. We're going to have to get out of Johnson County, we're going to have to get out of the suburbs if we want to have any chance at taking back this state in the future. So the last thing that I really want to talk about in this podcast is what is next for the left. Now, Already we're seeing that the left nationwide, while the Democrats didn't do too well, we actually did pretty good. Uh, we, Of the DSA candidates that ran, the majority won their offices, and DSA has picked up quite a lot of new members since the election and the weeks before it. So we are growing. The left is going to continue to grow if all goes well. Uh, but we do need to realize that we are going to be the opposition to the Biden administration, just as we were to the Trump administration, because we're not... We're not Biden Democrats. You know, we are socialists at the end of the day. That is what we are going to stand for, and we are going to continue to fight the capitalist system. And Biden is the candidate of the capitalist system, just as Trump was. So we will be in continued opposition to that. But I am also seeing a lot of discourse about, is now the time for a new party? You know, now that the election's over, do we need to start organizing for a new party for 2022 or 2024 now? And I would like to urge caution on that. Don't get me wrong, I would love there to be a workers' party or a labor party or something like that in the United States, but getting a very serious party off the ground is going to be very hard, and getting not, because you can't just say, we're going to run candidates here, here, and here, and we're going to win these seats, and that's going to take us to the next level. No, to get a party going, you need to have a base, you need to have power, you need to have infrastructure and organization, and so initiatives like the Movement for a People's Party, I am very skeptical of them because they're not doing the nitty-gritty work that really needs to get done before you can even run candidates. DSA has run candidates largely on the Democratic ballot line because it was sort of a shortcut through all the other difficulties that occur when you're trying to get a candidate elected. And if you're trying to do it as a third party or as independents, you're constantly in a struggle for your own basic existence because of the nature of ballot access laws in this country. So getting on the ballot is going to be the first step, and you're not going to have a whole lot of time to organize, build power, and build your infrastructure that you need to actually win elections and gain that influence in public office if you're constantly fighting just to get on the ballot to basically exist in this in this space politically. So... You know, I think that we need to be very cautious about recommendations for how to do a third party now. A longer-term strategy like a dirty break is something I'm much more open to and think is going to be much more effective. Because the reality is, just the nature of American elections, the nature of getting a third party anywhere, makes it all but impossible for us to have the influence that we would need in the long term. You know, to get a third party on the ballot is a very difficult process in most states, 
And so building a people's party or any of these other sorts of initiatives is a very difficult prospect, and you're not going to be able to get it done in really two years. Uh, so I don't think that the strategy of uh, third party now is going to work very well. I think that the movement for a people's party, when if they can get on the ballot, you know, good for them, but I think they're going to be a stillborn initiative. I think that their candidates aren't going to pick up much of the vote because they're going to have to spend most of their time in the run-up to the election just getting on the ballot. And it's much easier to get on the ballot if you just run in Democratic primaries, and that does give an extra challenge of then having to win said primary. But as we have shown, we can do that. We can win in Democratic primaries. you know, And it's a much more effective system than trying to get on the ballot as a third party that no one has heard of, and you have no real base or presence in the community because you've had to spend all your time getting on the ballot. It's not going to be an effective way of getting power and getting organization in this country. We need to do things that are effective, not things that we just think are better. Uh, you know, that's the reality of this conversation about building a third party. Now, do I think that the Democrats can be taken over by the left? That is very difficult. I think that what we need to do is we need to build power using the Democratic ballot line and independent ballot lines conceivably and build power institutionally that way as we build power from below as well, you know, through things like tenant organizing, labor organizing, you know, building our DSA chapters and building these campaigns around things like eco-socialism. And then once we have that built, we can effectively bring the contradictions within the Democratic Party to a breaking point. You know, that's how we would you know, effectively establish our own party is by heightening the contradictions within the Democratic Party. It's not going to come through just breaking off now and starting out fresh. We're going to have to use an existing base and get that base for ourselves before we can go any further. So that's my take on this conversation about what to do with a third party. Um, you know, and as for what we do with the rest of our time between now and the next election, now and the rest of this Biden administration, you know, we're going to need to continue to organize as we have been for the last four years, and we're going to need to fight. And we cannot depend on the liberals anymore. We're going to need to acknowledge that. We're going to need to acknowledge that as a setback, but that will mean that we can be much more explicit in our radical demands and push more fervently for them. So we can see a positive side here, and we can hopefully win over liberals who will become dissatisfied as this administration will get its hands tied by Republicans and by, you know, itself. You know, they are, the Democrats are not very effective at governing to the left, to their own base. And now that there is an effective and organized left in the United States, I think that we will start to see more and more liberals coming over to our side and embracing our ideas because they are now going to have an alternative to look to. It's not just going to be, you know, progress, you know, it's not just going to be these liberal progressive, uh, you know, half you know, half solutions that we saw during the Obama years, we're, we now have a real radical left alternative in this country that we're going to need to continue to build, and we now have access to this liberal constituency that will be increasingly disaffected. We saw after the Obama election in 2008, the kind of liberal answer to that, to the rise of the Tea Party, was the rally to restore sanity, uh, you know, the John Stewart rally. Now, we have a very serious, very real radical alternative that we didn't have in 2008. And so that is going to be something people are going to look to. They're not going to look towards this rally to restore sanity stuff. They're going to look towards, you know, the groups that are calling for Medicare for All and the Green New Deal. And as the climate crisis gets worse, 
we are going to see our voice expand exponentially because we aren't going to have a whole lot of time to deal with this and moderate solutions will not help us. They will not save us. We have to continue to push for even more drastic action on this one. So yeah, we got to continue to organize. We got to continue to fight and we are going to be in opposition for the next four years just as we were for the last four. But hopefully one day we will be on our way to power as we continue to build power in our communities, in our workplaces, in politics, we will be on course for power one day. And that's where we need to go. So that's all I have for today. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Please be sure to rate, share, subscribe, check out my YouTube channel um, and all my videos there. And if you really like this podcast, please consider throwing some money my way to help keep it going. You can do so either on my Patreon or you can do so through Anchor FM now. Well, thank you so much for listening, and as always, solidarity. Solidarity.